G'day, welcome dear listeners to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Anthony Dillon, who identifies as a part Aboriginal Australian and as a researcher with the Institute for Positive Psychology and Education at the Australian Catholic University, or ACU. Anthony, welcome to the Jacobs Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Excellent. The um, And I... Just in your bio there, it's actually quite a bit, quite interesting. You identify as part Aboriginal Australian. Why do some people take offence to that? Yeah, look, I mean, you say it's interesting. It shouldn't be interesting. It should be quite boring or, or normal, actually. But, um, okay, why do they take offence at it? A, a couple of reasons. They're always looking for some reason to take offence at. Um, I think for, for those ones um, who take offence with that particular language... Maybe they're concerned about, oh, um, you know, if I'm if I'm part Aboriginal, maybe I can only be part offended, perhaps. Mm. Um, but I think generally it's just another. They're just looking for another excuse, uh, another politically correct mm. reason um, to show their offence, um, and they've got to take a, a stand. And look, yeah. um, even today. It's still it's common to you know hear people talk about oh yeah I'm I'm part Chinese I'm I'm part German um, or whatever but when, and that's that's fine but when it comes to Aboriginal uh, suddenly you get all the the um, social justice warriors and and whinger ninjas jumping up and down saying oh you can't say that you can't say that well you can yeah. say that there's nothing wrong with it, it yeah. to me it just acknowledges that I have other ancestry in addition to my Aboriginal ancestry and I'm grateful for all my ancestries. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, in my case, I, I remember just using the term mixed race for pretty much all my life. But some people will sometimes remind me that that's actually offensive in some circumstances, too, which is baffling because, um, you know, it's a term that's, that's literally used. Like I grew up in the Middle East and um, travelled all, all over the place. And it's a term that's used in a lot of different uh, cultural contexts, as they say, and certainly not offensive. But as you say, it's that sort of the offence brigade and that, that sort of scan constantly for offence, you're going to find these sorts of issues pop up and these sorts of terms uh, can become offensive. Um, but, yeah, they eventually will. It's very bizarre. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, people like you and I, we just simply reflect the reality that there have been um, people of different cultures coming together, uniting. Mm. Um, so I think it's a beautiful thing. Exactly, and celebrating what's good. And I know we'll get to that. And, um, you know, you've spent a lot of time um, you know, in the public eye, you know, speaking positively about, you know, some of the things that put it, bind us together. So, for example, Australia Day and those sorts of things. And um, But before you sort of got into this kind of space, your father, Anthony Colin Dillon, um, is a famous policeman in Queensland. He's credited with being the first Indigenous police officer. So did you ever think about becoming a police officer yourself? No, I did not. And that's simply because I think just growing up with it, it seemed so normal. It was just a um, normal thing. Dad went to work. Uh, he was a police officer, well-respected, and I saw it at home. I only saw the good stuff too. Um, so, no, it didn't have an appeal to me. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I know in my own case, I really wanted to be a police officer, and then my parents sort of dissuaded me from it and just sort of thought I'd be dealing too much with the tougher elements or the more depressing elements of the world than doing something else. So, yeah, it's sort of something I was interested in, but um, I've obviously gone a, a different direction. But, um, 
like either way, though, I sort of see that you're still involved in helping people, given your profession, but or at least trying to understand them. And your area of focus is positive psychology. Um, yes. You're a doctor. What did you? What did you? Uh, what's your PhD topic on? And uh, has it actually helped you in your current work or looking at current yeah, affairs, for example? It's a psychology-based um, PhD. Mm-hmm. I did it on that dreaded ADHD, um, oh. which has, you know, become a, a, quite a common term used um, in the last. Um, you know, five, ten, fifteen years. Oh yeah. I guess. Um, and you know, it, it is a whatever you think about it. It is a big issue that we have a, a lot of kids these days who are can be difficult to manage. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, that creates problems. And the, the way you frame it, the way you define it, influences how you respond to it. Mm-hmm. So it's just drawing the the different ways it's framed and explained. Okay, excellent. And so it's pretty useful, do you think, in terms of like your writing and stuff like that and your, some of your current affairs observations or has it um, helped you in any way or is it just sort of a bit of a different kind of thing that you draw on sometimes? No, look, um, it helps me in a couple of ways that I, I still move in the mental health circles. Um, mm-hmm. But very importantly, when doing a PhD, you get to learn how to be more objective and... Um, you know, it is a learning process. You you think you're objective. You think you see the way things are. You see yeah. two events, B follows A, and you think, well, A must have caused B. Um, but under the guidance of supervisors and that, you realise that you need to take a step back, be more scientific, um, be more logical, uh, examine your own biases. So it helps you with your objectivity and helps you yeah. to be a best, better investigator. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Probably, you know, it's something that's really lacking, I think, a bit of scepticism and, you know, my own sort of way, I don't have a PhD, of course, but with my own sort of professional experiences, just having this observation of the world that um, there's always, you know, competing explanations for things or multi-causal things that, um, you know, B follows A, those sorts of things. And then this this idea of trade-offs as well, I think is really important. Um, but yeah, it's, that's um, an interesting sort of thing, but you know, I'm looking to do my PhD someday, hopefully, but um, just haven't got to it yet. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, look, find something, yeah. find something you're passionate about. Yeah, cool. It's definitely good advice. And I know you recently wrote a good piece in the Spectator called "Blind to Their Own Racism," and I'll just quote here because I think this is a really good quote from it. That you say, "My blood starts to boil when I hear that we can't move forward together as one until white Australia acknowledges past atrocities." So, what did you mean by that one? Okay, uh, thanks for for raising that. Um, well, first of all, there are already a lot of Aboriginal people who have moved forward. They're doing quite well. They're an inspiration. Um, so I think it's just a simple lie to say that, you know, we can't move forward until this happens or that happens, you know, till we acknowledge the past or we get a treaty or we change Australia Day or whatever. Just complete nonsense because there are uh, a lot of examples that prove... Otherwise, and when you tell a, you know, imagine you've got someone who's not doing so well for whatever reason, mm. um, you know, they could be unemployed, live in a bad neighbourhood or whatever. Mm. And if you tell them, oh, you know, you can't move forward until this group of people or politicians or whatever acknowledge the past or acknowledge something, mm. that's very, de- very demotivating. You'll just sit there and you think, okay, well, I guess I can't move forward until these things happen. 
Mm. And, mm. you know, it saps people of their own internal motivation and energy. That's mm. why my blood boils. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, you'd be certainly waiting forever in a lot of circumstances yeah. to, um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, mate, as you've written about in your, your great book, you've mentioned many people in there who weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouths, who had it rough, mm. and yet they moved forward. Yeah, no, that's a good point, yeah. and thanks for bringing it up too, Anthony. Yeah, in my book, Winners Don't Shed, I do talk about this instance of the poverty wheel that I attended this training, uh, cultural training session, and I think it was sort of slide two, we presented with the poverty wheel, and um, it was just kind of this loop where it was unbreakable, and um, I just sort of thought, well, yeah, as, as you mentioned, um, there are so many people who've just pulled themselves out of this this supposed poverty wheel and been able to um, prosper and do well, and they certainly haven't waited for the you know for things to change or waited for you know they've actually motivated themselves and given themselves energy and um, applied their talents and efforts and yeah they certainly didn't wait around but yeah it's a it's a sort of I think if you could just wait out then um, you'll be bitterly disappointed in the modern world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sure. The um, but so from reading your work, and we were talking a bit offline about this. You write prolifically or write all the time, and but you, you the sort of theme that I, I think that you keep returning to is or you focus on in all your work is it's really just focus on building better capabilities for individuals and you know solving real problems that some Indigenous people face, so poverty, sickness, and unemployment, and constantly drawing it back to. You know how how are these things, whatever we talk about in the public discussion, going to um, focus on those issues and alleviating these issues. But it seems there's so much noise around trying to talk about this. Um, as you write, and I'll quote again: "Highlight any social problem that disproportionately affects Aboriginal people, and you will likely be accused of stereotyping." Actually, it depends on the problem. For example, it's okay to talk about high rates of diabetes, but mention high rates of violence or child abuse and expect to be accused of stereotyping. Uh, can you just sort of expand on that? Because I hear what you're saying, but for listeners... Yep, sure. Uh, stereotyping is one of those weapons used, mm. again, by the Winja Ninjas and the Victim Brigade to silence mm. other people. It's like the word mm. racism. Uh, as mm. soon as that label gets slapped on you or that word gets fired at you, you're meant to shut up. And because, you know, let's face it, yes, racism and stereotyping are not good things. Unfortunately, mm. those terms are misapplied um, mm. to anything that's inconvenient. And so, mm. you know, to say, accuse you of stereotyping, it's a way of shutting down the conversation. And, and mm. coming back to your earlier point, yeah, in mm. a nutshell, there are some serious problems which we need to deal with. You know, mm. getting food on the table, getting kids into school, adults into job. They should be our priorities, not all the other silly things that seem to consume uh, mm. media and, and the social media and this space. Yeah, that's a good point because I think, you know, what accompanies that is the symbolism, I think, because, you know, that's a, that's a publicly understandable type thing in terms of how can you lend sympathy to something on a public mass scale um, that sort of, I think, makes people feel decent and good. Uh, at least for a little bit anyway, but then confronting yeah. those sorts of problems you talk about, poverty, sickness, unemployment, they're much harder issues to take on and they're, they're issues that, you know, there's not easy 
answers to, and they're certainly not symbolic answers to. No, they're not. And the fact that they are difficult means we like to focus on the more easy things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, speaking of symbolism, actually, so we've had, you know, I think the more you look or the more you read at um, history in Australia or recent history, at least sort of since the Whitlam era, that we've had a great deal of symbolism. And, you know, you look back again, like I mentioned, Whitlam and Lingari and, you know, Hawke, Keating's Redfern speech, um, Kevin Rudd's apology. Um, and then you look at, for example, even Welcome to Countries are performed, you know, at every event with very good intentions. But And that's sort of on the progressive side of things. But you do, look, you've got some great symbolism, I think, on the conservative uh, side of politics. You know, there's, you know, Neville Bonner, for example, um, Ken Wyatt, Eric Derail, who was a f Australia's first Indigenous state MP in the Queensland Parliament in the 70s, but he was a national. Um, I think sort of people look, though, at the symbols, and I think especially the sort of progressive side of things and, and think, look, we need to convert those things um, for us to sort of alleviate that poverty, sickness and unemployment, all those tougher challenges. So the big ones, you know, what are your thoughts, for example, on changing you know, the Constitution or Australia Day? Yeah, look, again, we, I have spoken about this with many other people. It's, you know, regularly in the news and, you know, we know that although it happened earlier this year, but normally come January, December, January, we, we see the protesters and we hear all the, the silly cries and that sort of thing. And I've yet to hear anyone tell me, OK, if we make this change, this is how it will help Aboriginal people. I need to see a plan. So I don't dismiss, dismiss these things altogether, but I'm yet to be convinced. And I keep asking people, OK, change the date or change the constitution or bring in a treaty can you please explain to me the plan how that will translate mm. into tangible benefits for mm. Aboriginal people how will it help them in a practical way mm. yeah and then what's the sort of what what are the sort of responses that you get it's um are they pretty sort of there's nothing concrete I imagine or how what does the response go like Nothing concrete. Well, when it comes to a treaty, you usually get the response of, you know, we're the only Commonwealth country who doesn't have one with its Indigenous people or something like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, if we're the only country, that means we should have one. Well, that's not mm. a good enough reason. Mm. With the Australia Day one, you hear the story how people are hurting and what would it cost to just change that date? Well, I'll tell you what it will cost. If you change mm. that date... It sends a message to the person who claims that they were upset that the celebration on 26th of January really must have upset you or else the government wouldn't have changed it. And that's just reinforcing a myth that your happiness is dependent upon a date. Now, mm -hmm. it'd be like if um, you bumped into me, uh, we're working along, you bumped into me and I tell you, you've upset me, Sean, and until you say sorry... I'm going to be upset. And let's suppose if you decide to say sorry, what you've actually done, you've just re rewarded my helplessness and misery. Mm. You've convinced me that I really must have been upset because mm. you didn't say sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a good yeah. state to be in when you teach people that their emotions, their feelings are dependent upon the actions and symbolism of other mm. people. And look, just on Australia Day, again... Mm there's many thousands of Aboriginal people who have a great day on that day. So mm. why aren't they suffering? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's the sort of thing, like you mentioned earlier, Anthony, that um, you know you can almost sort of just wait at wait for these things. You know, come coming up to January, you know, we'll get you'll probably be um, doing a bit of media, but this sort of noise just certainly tends to, um, you know, for natural reasons around Australia, get drummed up again. Um, but I, you know, my dad just mentioned the other day a good quote that empty drums make the most noise, and I think that's yes. the perfect. Um, sort of metaphor there for, yeah. um, you know, you asking specifically, you know, about what specifically changing the date will do. And I like your point too about the sort of, because um, I've sort of thought about this for a while in terms of once you, um, you know, if you're waiting for, um, you know, I guess an apology or to amend a document or to do, you know, these sorts of acts of high symbolism and, and only until then can you move on. Um that sort of comes back to that that idea of just constantly waiting forever. But it, it what it does though is I think it demotivates and it saps your energy as an individual, like you mentioned. But it also just highlights difference, I think, as well. Like it it, it serves this sort of purpose. Like a lot of people would think that they're doing a unifying thing when I think the exact the the exact opposite might be an outcome where you're you know you're highlighting difference and not highlighting things that bring us together. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes people act on good intentions with these things, mm-hmm. um, particularly the non-indigenous folk. It's it's good intention, but you need to think really carefully about these things and just ask yourself: Is this going to help in the long run, or does it just provide a short-term happiness? The warm inner glow, as they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think yeah. we we need to be careful. We we want um, we want long-term gain. Okay, um, not yeah. just a short-term gain. We want a long-term yeah. gain. Sure, and I think you know someone. A great example of that long-term gain, at least from what I've studied, is uh, I mentioned Neville Bonner before, um, who was mm-hmm. Australia's first indig- federal Indigenous parliamentarian, um, and I've wrote about him a fair bit, and I again look up to him because he's a great example of just being an individual, but a time of you know real deal discrimination and segregation. And I think just a great example of proper liberalism and, you know, building those capabilities, being able to pull yourself out of that poverty wheel that we talked about. Um, and actually, on your recent recommendation, I read Clarence Mason's It's Okay to Leave the Plantation. And there's a great, I took out great notes from that book, but um, there was one that really jumped out to me, and I'll quote, I recognised the system and it was colourblind. It did not care about your race, sex or culture, only your fears and dependencies, and again, a great quote. Um, is there anyone else that's inspired you, or any uh, books out there that sort of talk to some of the things that you've been you've written about in your career so far? Yeah, certainly. Um, there's a fella called in America, and it's interesting mm-hmm. that th- there's a lot of good stuff in America um, mm-hmm. with the Black Americans and, and also the Indians over over there. But one fella, the uh, Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, not to be confused with the Reverend Jesse Lee Jackson, who's the complete opposite. He's a twit. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, Reverend Jesse, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, he's got um, good stuff. He wrote an excellent book called Scam: How the Black Leadership Exploits Black America, and you can check him out on YouTube. You know, most of these people are on YouTube these days, but he's quite good. Um, Certainly the book you, you mentioned um, about leaving, it's okay to leave the, the plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Luther King, 
certainly mm-hmm. look up to him. And um, I'll just g- dig out a, a quote uh, from Martin Luther King. Mm. He said, finally, the Negro himself has a decisive role to play in if integration is to become a reality. Mm-hmm. Indeed, if first-class citizenship is to become a reality for the Negro, he must assume the primary responsibility for making it so. In this period of social change, the Negro must come to see that there is much himself, there is much that he himself can do, do about his plight. He may be uneducated or poverty-stricken, but these handicaps must not prevent him from seeing that he has within his being the power to alter his fate. So, yeah, great MLK, uh, one mm. of my heroes. Mm. Uh, coming closer to home, I think Warren Mundine has put good ideas mm. out there. And, he, you know, he's very focused on success, getting kids mm. into school, adults into jobs. Mm. Um, and I'll finally just mention one other fellow. There's a Canadian Indian. He's a lawyer, mm. Calvin Heelan, H-E-L-I-N. He wrote a good book called Dances with Dependency. And he's got good stuff. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And I know your yeah. favourite, um, <laughs> Booker T. Washington. That's right. Yep. yep. Up From Slavery, a great book. And I know we've both devoured that and got a lot out of it. Um, yeah. Definitely. It's yeah. one I recommend to anyone and everyone because it's such a short book to read too. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't take you that long. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, let's not forget Shelby Steele, uh, Black mm-hmm. American. Writes yep. amazing stuff as well. Mm, definitely, and um, I think so. There's some, two good ones there that I hadn't, you know, I knew about Jesse Lee Peterson, but I haven't read any of his work or even watched too much of his stuff. But Calvin Heathlam sounds interesting too, because um, there might be a lot of application. I think there it might seem just on face value to um, sort of remote indigenous uh, places, communities. Yes. Um, yeah, so those are two good recommendations that I didn't even weren't, weren't even aware of. But mm-hmm. one of the things too, I think you know what, looking back on this, you know Booker T, but you know MLK is a great quote. And one of the things I sort of think about too is that you know that quote talks about handicaps for um, for Black Americans, and you know this is obviously 2018, and all those handicaps have been removed. You know the desegregation, the anti-discrimination these laws have been removed and taken away and um, so and we've got so many individual capabilities that we can draw from and refine and prosper and do well in a modern world and I think that there's sort of once you apply those sorts of values um, today one can do really well um, you know like you absolutely that's, yeah 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 and, and look um, it- yeah. It's so easy for people to make an excuse. So you'll always get some racist idiot out there who does something stupid, and you should not let that be an excuse to mm. not achieving. But it is very easy to say, "Oh, look, see, racism—it's mm. rampant. I can't move mm. forward. They're holding me mm-hmm. back." Now, mm-hmm. look at the many, many examples of successful people that are doing mm. well. Yeah, that's right. And I, again, like it's that—I always sort of make the point whenever I can that. You know, Bonner, Booker T, MLK, these sorts of figures, like this was real deal discrimination and segregation too. And the cultural attitudes were sort of pivoted against them very heavily. But they again applied that individual vigour, self-agency, responsibility and all those sorts of values to 
whatever problems they were confronting um, and often to get better. And um, yeah, that's one of the things that I took out of Warren Mundine's great autobiography that he just released recently in black and white. And um, that, you know, talking about this stuff and I guess there's a sort of values, yes, but then if you put those values on to, say, um, land issues or, you know, building a commercial enterprise and, to, you know, private property rights and all those sorts of, uh, I guess, sort of mo those techniques to create capital and wealth and those sorts of things. What I was really shocked about was just the backlash that he got when he was floating some of these ideas um, sort of in the mid-90s and things like that. It was just quite incredible that you'd think from otherwise... Um, you know, people who'd be like, you know, okay, this is a good thing that we need to do this and start looking at property rights and to raise capital and build businesses and those sorts of things um, would get a lot of support for. But it's quite incredible that there's that, that backlash about that too. Exactly. And look, as my father found out in the police force, um, mm. those, those bad ones, they don't like it when someone doesn't want to run with their pack. They see them as mm. a threat and they're out to get them. So... You know, good mm. on Warren and, and good on my father who took a stand and said, no, mm. I'm going to be principle-centred on this. Yeah, sure. Um, and we, you know, we're grateful for role models like them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, that's a good point. And I think one of the things, just very quickly, that I covered in my book is just how, um, how difficult it is sometimes to stay principled, but just how necessary it is to stay principled. You know, my, lot of my book's really designed for you know, people coming out, young Aussies coming out of high school and starting a professional career. But if you sort of let your principles slide in the earlier years, in your formative years, they'll slide a lot easier when you sort of get into your 30s and 40s and those sorts of things. So you have to be really, really vigilant about them. And um, what actually, one of the other people that we haven't mentioned, I'm a big fan of, is Thomas Sowell, um, you mm. know, approaching 90 um, now, or if he isn't, he's over his 90s. But... Um, He's just someone who's, I think, much like yourself in terms of having that PhD training, and I think that really sort of got him to look at, you know, stats, um, applying rigor to different things, and not you know, being sceptical, free inquiry, free thought, those sorts of elements that you've certainly applied in, in your work. Um, and one of the things, too, that I mentioned in my book about soul, and to do with principles, actually, is that hey, there were there were two examples when he uh, just very. Uh, very briefly, we'll go through. But one, the first one, when he was in, it was in the 1960s, and he was encountering. So he applied for a job at the National Security Agency in um, in the United States, and he rocks up to the job interview, and um, the recruiter finds out that he's he's black, and so the job mysteriously disappears. So he, Sowell goes back to um, New York, writes to his congressman, and his congressman straightens it out. He goes back. The job mysteriously reappears. He goes back and then he's offered the job on the spot and he finds out it's because of his complexion that he's offered it and he goes, no, thanks, I don't want it that way. And you fast forward a few decades to when Sowell's a bit more prominent um, in the US as an economist and he's approached by the board of the American Economic Review by Kenneth Arrow, so a Nobel economist, um, and he's asked to be on the board and most economists would just sort of fall over themselves, I think, to be able to get onto the the board. Um, but then when he finds out from Arrow that it's a part of attempts to racially diversify the board, he gives the same response he gave back in the 60s that, no, thanks, I don't want it that way. And I think, you know, that's a great... I always sort of try and tell that 
story about when it comes to principles and complexion and a, you know, in a changing world and those sorts of things because it's such a really powerful story about staying principled and, you know, being an individual too and, you know, having capabilities and merit and those sorts of things, but once again, just staying principled. Yeah, I agree 100%. And look, yeah. you know, we it's, it's something to aim for and we're, we're all going to slip at some time or another and it's just good that when we do slip, there's mm-hmm. someone there to pick you up and, and help you move on. Yeah, definitely. The um, right, well, some great recommendations there. I'll certainly be um, checking out a few of those. And um, so, thanks heaps for those, Anthony. Um, one of the so just sort of wrapping up, um, coming to the last sort of couple of things. But the Sarita Williams cartoon, which she wrote um, about recently, is kind of fading from um, the sort of public. <laughs> Uh, spotlight a bit, but I think you just made a really look. Good look, it may be it may be yeah, fading, it may be fading, but you can be sure in the near future there's going to be a similar event. Fair enough. But yeah. So just yeah, keep you can change the sort of names and the places, but um, <laughs> yeah, commentary will stay the same. But um, and you but you wrote something really interesting, and I think about the nature of racism today, or what we might perceive as it, and I'll quote. If that cartoon is what racism is, as so many in the Twitter sphere thought, then I think it proves that any real racism is fast becoming extinct. And I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a great irony, but just a good sign of progress, perhaps, in a kind of ironic and strange way. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, if, if you have to go through that sort of mental gymnastics to mm-hmm. see racism... Mm-hmm. I think it speaks volumes, um, mm. just how far we have come. And I was reading, um, let me just get this out for you. There was a, re- a report um, put out by the AIHW, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. And they were mm-hmm. saying that, so in this document, they were saying that the majority, 83% of Indigenous adults surveyed, indicated that they had been treated the same as non-Indigenous people when seeking health care in the previous 12 months. Um, now, that's, that's quite a good figure, 83%, and I suspect it's higher, um, but you'll always get some people who, you know, even if they're treated the same, they'll say, oh, I was treated differently because I was, I was black or whatever. But 83% said they were treated the same. Now, in the same report, um, they then recommended that the current definitions of discrimination were too narrow and that the concept of discrimination should be expanded to capture oppression and racism. So they got this good figure of 83% and they thought that's too high, so they thought they should broaden the definition of racism and discrimination. Um, And that's what we see happening. We see this definition of racism. It's very elastic. It's being stretched. to the point where just, oh, you know, for goodness sake, you know, gollywog biscuits on a shelf are offensive mm. and racist, so we've got to take them off the shelf or change their name. Mm. Someone wearing black face paint to mm. look like someone else, oh, that's racist. Now, look, racism mm. is when a person is refused service mm. in a shop, at a hospital, uh, looking for accommodation because of their race. And that really happens. You know, I won't say it never happens, but, you know, you've got to search far and wide to find cases like that. They're, they're rare, relatively rare. So now we have people coming up with this new racism. 
um, mm. where they can put a racist spin on anything and then say, look, see, racism is rampant. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a sign mm. of the times how yeah. far we've come that we've had to now invent this, this, this new silly racism. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's. I think that yeah, it's sort of like a kaleidoscope. I always kind of think that there's, it, it's just constantly changing and moving around to sort of fit um, instances of. And look again, I think it's just really power. It, it makes you, you know, feel powerless. And you know, I do write in my book too that, you know, and I can't remember the exact quote. I'll butcher it, but about Albert Einstein. Like, if you're a person looking at the world, and then it's like you, the, the fundamental question. That's right. He says is. It, 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 the person, a person must decide is, is the world a friendly or unfriendly place? And, you know, if you're looking at things through the lens of being an unfriendly place, of course you're going to find instances of, um, you know, injustice or th where things haven't gone wrong or hurt feelings or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, you've got to obviously decide that for yourself as an individual and, you know, really work on yourself to go, well, what's, what's going to help me and build my capabilities in a and thrive yeah. and prosper in a modern world. Yeah. We seek we seek to uh, validate our beliefs. And, and Goethe said that people find what they look for and they look mm. for what they believe. So exactly what you just said, mm. those mm. who want to see the world as unfriendly, they'll find evidence for it. They'll convince mm. themselves. Those who want to see the place, uh, you know, the world as a, a warm, caring mm. place with friendly people, they will find evidence for that as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that's right. And... Um, I think one of the interesting things and um, just sort of a, I guess a quick final point for me is that um, there's sort of that capacity. I did say, you know, I started my career in international aid and development and there's a lot of sort of overlaps in terms of that idea of, um, you know, moving the changing definitions, though, is, is part of something broader that I think where if you're not fixing those sorts of on the ground problems, You've just got to you keep looking at yourself to go well. What can we do? What can we do? And I think that's probably why you've had such a proliferation of government programs is to go. Okay, well this one isn't working. We don't want to be accused of not doing anything. Therefore, we need to start another one. And then if you're the feds, the the state starts doing something, and then sooner you know you, there's you know 100 plus programs dealing with an issue, and then um, it just sort of becomes this really like a thick forest of government programs and intervention and those sorts of things when um, you know, like when, yeah, so that's sort of that, that the overthinking it and the constant kaleidoscope of the definitions is kind of like that when it comes to government programs, I think, in my view, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and report after report after report. And just on that mm. matter, um, at mm. that last conference where we met for the first time, which was a great conference, um, mm -hmm. you, may, you may want to give that conference a plug in a minute. But yeah, I met sure. a fellow there from Western Australia. He was with the police for eight years, I think it was eight years, he got out of the police force in Western Australia, but he was said, he said during that time, the terminology used to describe Indigenous Australians changed 26 times over an eight-year period in the police force there. He said that's the sorts of issues they were focused on. Rather than going out and helping those people who are homeless, drug dependent, etc., etc. The big issues for them was getting the terminology right. 26 times over eight years, they changed the terminology. So, yeah, look, yeah we do. Example. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. do allow ourselves to get distracted by trivia. Yeah, no, that's right. And, um, you know, at the same time, 
Yeah, it's a good point. At the same time, and look, just to give a plug, actually, so Liberty Fest 2018, and and this is a sort of note of optimism from me that I just recently put out a piece on libertyworks.org.au, which is attached to Liberty Fest where um, Anthony and I met. Um, but I, the piece that I wrote was, um, you know, confronting the red tape of character identity politics, and I was actually a little bit optimistic in my piece because... I do say that, um, you know, eventually, you know, individuals do well in the modern world because they have skills and then, you know, eventually, um, you know, you're going to have to confront that as a person that you can't always rely upon identity alone to carry you through. I know that's something you talk about as well. It's, it's, you're not relegating identity to say that it's completely unimportant, but it's finding a way for that identity to be compatible and to work for you as an individual. Um, you know, and build skills and prosper and be responsible, but not dispose of it completely. And um, that's a really good point, I think, too. But I just I think it's a note of optimism because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people doing it from a lot of different cultures, but particularly a lot of Aboriginal people in Australia as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we know how poisonous identity politics can be. And, yeah, certainly there's a time and a place for identifying with a group. You know, I'm a a male, I'm a Sydney cider from Queensland. Um, so I've just mentioned three aspects of my identity there. And, and yeah, very blue time, supporter as well, no doubt. So yeah. well, you probably go for the Maroons, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, always, always. Um, good, good, loyal. And so <laughs> there's a time and a place to use that identity and reflect upon it. But yeah, I'm an individual. Um, I should never forget that. I'm an individual connected with other individuals. Um, but, you know, I'm not just sucked into one group um, that I build my identity around. Yeah, no, that's a really good point and probably a good place to finish. But just before you head off, you, um, you're a prolific writer. You're constantly writing. Where can, we, where can listeners find your, um, your work and um, tune into some of your stuff, Anthony? Yeah, go to my website, www.anthonydillon.com.au. You'll see my blog there with articles. Feel free to make a comment, reach out. I look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. And I'll just mention as well that you've got some great, uh, you've done a lot of things um, on different YouTube and Sky and um, a few different YouTubers as well. So I encourage listeners to check those out. And um, yeah, thanks very much, Dr. Anthony Dillon. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us on the Jacobs podcast. Thank you, Sean. I hope the next time we chat, it'll be face-to-face. Definitely looking forward to it. Thanks again. Okay. Well, thank you very much, dear listeners. That was Dr. Anthony Dillon, and I encourage uh, you to get online and check out some of his uh, work. And this is episode 21 of the Jacobs Podcast, and I'm stoked to be able to have gotten this far and have some great guests, not only like Dr. Dillon, but Jeremy Samet, David Flint, uh, Enoch Lee, and cover a broad range of topics as well that I hope many of you find interesting. Uh, I encourage listeners to please, whatever medium that you listen to, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever, please rate um, or share and leave a review or even just pass on to your friends. That'd be great. And um, for listeners who have gotten in touch with ideas for discussion um, or topics, uh, please continue to do so. Um, A lot of good episodes have grown out of those recommendations. So thank you very much and happy listening and until next time.